The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Can, can people hear okay? So I would like to continue a series of talks I've been doing on the paramis, often translated into English as the perfections. And uh, these are ten virtues or practices or qualities of heart that come into play as people engage in Buddhist practice, though they're not inherently Buddhist, they're just good things to do. The, um, <clears throat> one of the, I think, important things to realize about Buddhist practice is that it has an inner dimension where we go into ourselves and understand ourselves better, and it has an outer dimension where we go out into the world and connect to the world and engage in the world, hopefully, for the, for the better understand our connection to the world better. And then it has a dimension that includes both, the inner and the outer, something that holds it all. And these ten perfections are qualities that relate in both directions. They're things that have to do with how we can cultivate a wiser, more uh, uh, useful relationship to ourselves. And it's also a way of cultivating a uh, more useful, wiser relationship to the world around us. So it begins uh, with uh, the first of these paramis is generosity, and generosity often is seen as something we do for the world, we're generous towards other people. But the emphasis in Buddhism is that generosity, when you're generous to someone else, uh, you don't do it as a duty, as an obligation, that you kind of are enforced to be generous and to give. But rather you do it as um, something that liberates your own heart, that liberates your own mind, that frees you from the ways in which you might be afraid or... or um, greedy or, or uh, spiteful or hateful or something, that there's, there's limitations we have on how we go through the world. And generosity is uh, something, when we can come from within, is a way of uh, softening or releasing our limitations. So it's meant to be both something for ourselves, the inner world, and something for the outer world where we support someone else. Ethics, the same way. Integrity, which is second part of me, uh, you know, it's a good. It's pretty helpful to other people if you if you live in a life of integrity. You become someone that people feel people feel safe around. Many people in our society don't feel safe, and it's a wonderful gift to give the gift of safety that they feel they can trust you. Um, but also to live in a life of integrity is to also again is to soften the, those forces inside of us of greed, hate, and delusion, of of anger, and and the different things that might cause us to do things with lack integrity, ethical transgressions and stuff. So the whole function of, of integrity in Buddhism, of ethics, is not just to be a good person for its own sake, but rather um, to liberate something, free something in ourselves, so that we can come forth with a kind of sensitivity and uh, the clarity, the purity of a pure heart. And then we have uh, renunciation, letting go, is a beautiful quality. It's often misunderstood or underappreciated. But the ability to not hold on to things, but to relinquish the, gris, the grasp, the hold, is very good for us because to be tight, uptight, and hold on to things, hold on to your anger, your fear, your possessions, your things, 
um, ultimately is exhausting and, uh, and uh, limits our life dramatically. But if we <clears throat> uh, relinquish, not as a, again as a duty, good Buddhists should just let go, but if you, um, if you understand that the, it's freeing of yourself in a beautiful way, then it also, I think, creates good conditions around us for other people as well. We don't hold on, we don't hold on to our anger as long, and that's good for many people. And so then uh, there's wisdom, good for ourselves and good for others. There is um, effort, the right kind of effort. Making, you know, Buddhism is not about Buddhist practice or cultivation of mindfulness. It's not, about, um, it's not really meant for the lazy. Even though there was a book called Lazy Man's Guide to Enlightenment. Um, it's not really meant for the lazy. It's meant, you know, it's, you have to engage. You have to do something. And you have to know what to do. Is what's useful to engage in. And that engagement and sometimes takes courage even. Uh, and that engagement with courageously into the world is good for ourselves, hopefully, and good for others. And then there's, uh, uh, what else is there? So that was uh, effort, and then there's patience. That patience is really good for you and really good for others. Especially if you want to make effort, you better be patient. And then there's um, truthfulness, commitment to truthfulness. It's a very important virtue in this kind of list. And that's also good for your, your, yourself, to live a life of lies, um, to, live a, to lie to yourself, lie to others. It's a huge cost on, on your heart to do that. Um, to live a life of truth, it's much more freeing. Um, it's much easier to go through life uh, at ease if you're committed to being truthful. And then there's resolve. <clears throat> Again, capacity of being courageous, of being determined, of knowing what you're doing, having aspiration. Uh, it's one of the beautiful qualities, I think, of any human life is to have a beautiful aspiration. Um, you know, it's kind of epitomized, I think, in American culture with Martin Luther King saying, I have a dream. The capacity to you know, have, have an aspiration, have a dream, a vision of something, and then be committed to it, um, maybe at all costs, is a be- can be a beautiful thing for ourselves and a beautiful thing to others. And then, um, <clears throat> and then today, the theme is loving-kindness. Usually, uh, metta is the word. And loving-kindness is uh, very helpful for the person who has love. Usually we feel good, don't we, we when we're loving? Usually. Especially when the love is pure. And uh, generally it's good for others, unless we're hitting them over the head with it, or we mix it up with too much desire, too much demand. I love you, so therefore you have to. <clears throat> Whatever. Um, so today's topic is loving-kindness, the perfection of loving-kindness. And um, you find, if you go to uh, Buddhist countries in Southeast Asia, that this quality of metta, loving-kindness or goodwill, friendliness, is one of the most important and cherished of the Buddhist virtues and qualities. And people refer to it a lot, they, 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 uh, they relate to it a lot. Many people have memorized pieces of the discourse on loving-kindness. Um, most people understand at least the principles of how the practice of loving-kindness is done. Um, when they're uh, concerned about their relationships with people around them, they'll often ask themselves, is there loving-kindness? Is there kindness in this activity that I'm doing? Is this a kind thing to do or a friendly thing to do or not? And that's a guide, guide for people to find their way and how to be uh, in their social universe. Uh, the practice of loving-kindness is connected to <coughs> uh, 
a bigger set of practices called the Brahma Viharas. And the Brahma Viharas are four. Uh, well, the word Brahma refers to one of the great gods of the Indian pantheon. And Vihara refers to, uh, it's a kind of a word for a dwelling place, a place where you live. Uh, like a monastery in Buddhism is, in, is often called the Vihara. And so um, the, the dwelling place of Brahma. So these four qualities of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, loving equanimity, are considered dwelling places of Brahma. And now it seems that one of the reasons for this, why it's called this, is that at the time of the Buddha, there were people whose primary spiritual practice was to try to get reborn in the heavenly realm of this Brahma. And uh, it's supposed to be pretty good up there. And so they would do the kind of things that hopefully they get reborn there. And so one day, uh, and, 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 and for the Buddha, the Buddha, the Buddha so one day people came, some people came to the Buddha and said, you know, how, can you teach us how we can get reborn in Brahma's realm? And the Buddha um, tended to have a very radical teaching that was often an alternative to many of the standard teachings of his time. And so for him, the goal of becoming born in the heavenly realm was not his goal. His goal was liberation, was freedom. Radical liberation, radical freedom. <clears throat> Independent for concern about future lives and heavens and hells. The radical freedom and purity of heart. But he also didn't, uh, often didn't... Um, criticize other people's religious points of view, but sometimes he would t- to hear that what they had to say and he'd kind of like, kind of, kind of turn it around on them or kind of do a little kind of Aikido move where he would <laughs> say, oh yeah, I'll teach you about how to do that. Uh, I'll teach you how to get born in the, in the... What you do is you'd practice the meditation practice of loving kindness or the meditation practice of cultivating a strong feeling of universal love, kindness, universal compassion, universal appreciative joy, and the joy of others, and a universal uh, kind of what's called equanimity, loving equanimity. And that you can develop this so strongly that uh, your love becomes universal. Your love has no bound boundaries. It's universal and includes all people, it has no preferences in it. You don't prefer you know, only your family or only your tribe or something. But uh, you have the capacity now to gaze out upon everyone uh, with great kindness, with great friendliness, universal friendliness. Um, in order to attain that kind of strong sense of universal friendliness, it requires a transformation or purification of many of the forces inside of us that are opposite of that. Anger, hate, spite, jealousy, uh, greed, fear. Those have to be somehow be purified or refined or let go of. And um, <clears throat> being par- partial or preferential. And so as these kinds of forces of what Buddhism might call fetters or things that bind the heart get released, it, the heart feels uh, freer and freer. We feel freer and freer. We also feel safer. You can't develop this in- infinite, boundless sense of loving-kindness, friendliness, unless uh, somehow your heart, your mind, feels safe. 
And so the whole cultivation of Buddhist practice is partly understanding what is the nature of real safety and, and how do we can establish safety in a world which has a lot of uh, dangers in it. Buddhism doesn't deny the dangers there, <clears throat> but is our safety found by putting, um, you know, uh, turrets on our house, you know, and locks and moats around it and higher, higher walls and barbed wire. <clears throat> Um, uh, the safety of the Buddha is, uh, oddly enough for many people from our point of view many people is actually to fill the moats take down the locks take down the turrets take down the walls and safety is found not in the external way but how we carry ourselves in the world how we hold ourselves in our own hearts that's where the safety is found and so there's this radical teaching of how to feel safe in the world and when we feel safe then it's a lot easier to feel this universal friendliness to the people around us. If you don't feel safe, it's hard to do it. It's quite reasonable not to feel friendliness if you don't feel safe. So, so how to find, how to discover friendly, uh, safety is an important part of Buddhist practice. <clears throat> so uh, the Buddha taught these people who wanted to get reborn in the Brahma's heaven, these practices of loving kindness, of universal friendliness, saying that if you attain this boundless state of kindness or friendliness, then you're dwelling, you're abiding, as if you're like Brahma. So that's why it's called the Brahma Vihara, Brahma's abidings. Or sometimes in English they call it uh, divine abidings because Brahma's God. And so, but what, but, so he teaches them a practice this is how you get reborn in this heavenly realm. <laughs> but the way to get to that, what he teaches them is how to transform their heart and mind in this realm and experience uh, a very, very satisfying, very beautiful experience of kindness, of love, of compassion that um, probably if you fully experience it, you're a pretty liberated person. And probably you're no longer that interested in getting reborn anywhere else because this life is so full, it's so beautiful. So these Brahma Viharas are seen as practices that can be cultivated. And, uh, and then we can offer those to the world. Uh, the idea of friendliness, of love, of kindness, of compassion in Buddhism is not left to chance. That you just, you just have the right amount of compassion, the right amount of kindness, friendliness, just because who you are and you, bump into the world around you and you'll just kind of know how to be friendly at the right time. But rather it's something to be cultivated and developed. You can, uh, you can strengthen your capacity. You can make it a stronger habit. You can uh, develop the understanding that when you go into different social situations, you're more likely to want to be friendly to those people as opposed to be hostile or afraid of them or something. And so a sig very significant form of Buddhist practice is to develop the understanding, develop the, um, uh, the, 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 um, the understanding that uh, helps us be friendly, but also uh, the practices that help release us from the forces inside that might keep us from wanting to be friendly. The hesitation, the fear, the anger, the resentment, the jealousies that might be there. So this is a big part of Buddhist practice um, uh, to, do, to do all those things. So, are we supposed to do these things? Are we supposed to be a friendly person if you come into a Buddhist community? 
one of the terrible oppressive things about maybe IMC (laughs) (laughs) is if you come here and you hear these teachings about being kind and friendly and then you kind of come around tiptoeing through this community thinking that you're supposed to be now this good person. You know, just be so good and, you know, kind of, you know, it's kind of a headache. <clears throat> I mean, it's good to be kind, good, right? But, but it's, it's much more important. You know, the, the, the whole practice of mindfulness, which is the foundation of who we are, it's much more important to be complete than to be good. It's much more important to have a practice of attention where we can hold ourselves all of who we are than it is to bifurcate ourselves into, compartmentalize ourselves into, you know, when I come here, I'm going to bring the, my good part. And my angry part, I'll save, you know, for my family or, <laughs> <coughs> or my coworkers or that, that, that political party or something. And um, the idea of mindfulness is to bring all of yourself into consciousness, into awareness, and to learn from that, to study that, and bring all of it to also, part of what we learn is the way in which we can be hostile to ourselves or partial to ourselves. And as we learn to be mindful of the whole shebang of who we are, the so-called good, the so-called bad, and we hold it with some kind of permission, some kind of acceptance, some kind of kindness, um, that's a radical thing to do because then we can, we can learn from that. And uh, there's a lot of learnings that can happen if we hold it in attention that we can't have if we're in a hurry to get rid of it or to deny, deny it. One of the things we learn is something that's helpful for our relationship to other people. If you understand that you're a mixed bag, it, uh, hopefully it's going to be easier for you to appreciate that other people are mixed bags as well. And so to be in some ways more accepting of them. It doesn't have to mean they have to allow them to just roll over you. But, um, but to be kind of see that they're having a hard time too. They have, mixed, they have their struggles, so they have their difficulties. And so maybe we can make space for the people who are difficult in our lives to just make space, to hold them in our attention and our awareness, uh, not be quick to judge them, not quick to resist them, just like we learn to do that for ourselves. So we learn for ourselves and then it can translate to doing that for other people. The other thing is we, what we learn when we stay, stay present for ourselves is we, um, we develop a heightened sensitivity or awareness of the choices we can make. <clears throat> Which direction, like every moment we come to a fork and the fork has to do with how am I going to respond to this situation? Do I respond to this situation with giving in to my anger, giving in to my greed, giving in to my fear, giving in to my, you know, whatever, my jealousy, my envy, my whatever it might be? Or do I give in to the other impulses that I might have, even if they might be very, very faint? Do I give in, 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 in to, do I choose that which is, brings more kindness, more friendliness? Do I choose that which is more compassionate? Do I choose that which is generous? Do I choose that which, you know, seems wiser. Every moment there's this choice. It's hard to see those choices, <clears throat> but a very important function of mindfulness practice is to have the stability of mind, the calmness, um, the subtleness, so that we can see how we're making choices all the time. 
And if we don't see how we're making choices, guess who's making the choice? You are. But not your consciousness. So much of what human beings run on is unconscious or subconscious choices we make. The, the processing of the mind can be very, very fast. And very fast we can be judging someone else. Very fast we can be critical of them. Or, but if you get settled and quiet, you can have a chance to see how this arises. And you can see that rather than being good, rather than being, having kindness or friendliness because it's a good thing to do, if you're sensitive, you'll see that being unkind is painful. Not that being unkind is bad, but being unkind is painful. Being angry is, is painful. And if you start looking at your life from the point of view of what is painful and what is peaceful, what is painful and what is pleasurable, what's, what's, what brings a sense of happiness, it's a whole different appreciation of how to move forward. If you decide how to live because of some abstract idea of good and bad, you're in trouble, I think. But if you, if Buddhist, my, Buddhism focuses, have to develop sensitivity so you can really see for yourself what is harmful and what is not. So it helps you with that choice and choose what is not harmful. Choose what is beautiful. One of the most beautiful things that, or important things that exists in, mo, in people is the desire for happiness, the desire for well-being. <clears throat> and I think most people, I would like to believe all people, sometimes they forget it, it's been covered over, but all people want to be happy. And the degree to which you want to be happy, to appreciate that other people are trying to do that too, other people are trying to find be peace as well, um, gives birth to uh, a greater sense of empathy and understanding of others. Yesterday, I went to Santa Cruz, downtown Santa Cruz. And if you haven't been there for a while, you, just, you should go down to downtown Santa Cruz. It's a wonderful cross-section of something. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a, a man who had a little, um, <clears throat> what is it called, card table. They'd set up on the sidewalk and he had two chairs. He sat in one and there was another chair. And he was just sitting there, with a, and there was a card, a little sign on his card table that said, Free Empathy. <laughs> Wasn't that something? Should be, every street should have a, someone sitting here. Free Empathy. And, um, and there, was a, there was another man actually sitting there <laughs> for his free empathy. And the empath was, he was very intent. I was really struck by his concentration, his intentness. He wasn't like, he didn't look like a loving person at all. (laughs) And uh, maybe that was the point. You don't have to be loving to have empathy, you know, know, overtly so. But he, he uh, he was giving his full attention to the person who was talking. I was really struck by, wow, he's really paying attention. Free empathy in Santa Cruz. So what does it take to offer empathy to others? What does it take to be willing to take other people into account and to feel them, be present for them? So in the teachings of the Buddha, there are a number, when he taught about loving kindness, he taught it uh, for a number of purposes. 
And it's, uh, one of the most common purposes he taught loving kindness was not for the sake of the person you're being friendly towards, but he taught it um, for your own sake, that it's, um, he taught it as a form of protection, a way of feeling safe in the world. Um, and he taught it for protection against animals who are maybe a little bit dangerous. He taught it for protection to other people that are maybe dangerous. Um, but to be able to come with friendliness, to come with kindness, uh, many times can dissipate, uh, can soften the threats that exist around us. And I've been in situations where um, it was only people's kindness and friendliness that uh, disarmed uh, situations I was in where I thought violence was, was coming our way. Um, not that I managed to do it, but some, some of my friends managed to do it. And, um, and uh, so, the way, so the Buddha taught it, taught loving kindness most commonly as a way of uh, becoming safer, as a form of protection. He also taught it as a way of creating social harmony. And that if you can look upon people with kind eyes, with friendly eyes, and relate to people in friendly ways, it creates uh, harmony. And he particularly advised it for his monastic community, uh, that the monastic community should look upon each other, uh, uh, or should, should uh, um, look upon each other with friendly eyes, speak to each other with friendly speech, and act to each other with uh, friendly acts. Um, uh, both in, both in, in overt ways and in hidden ways. I don't know, I forget exactly what his word was. It wasn't hidden, but in ways that are, uh, people can see that you're doing it, and, but also do it um, so people don't necessarily see that you're doing it. Uh, secret acts of kindness. And he said, if the monastic community were living together did that, then they can live together in harmony um, uh, like, uh, uh, like um, milk and water. And this expression, like milk and water, is one that's been carried down through the Buddhist traditions into China and Japan. And it's a very favorite idea of social harmony because oil and water doesn't mix, right? It stays apart. But you pour milk into water, it mixes and becomes, you know, one thing. So, um, so that's, a, that's another reason for that the Buddha taught loving-kindness practice. The third reason is um, so you can sleep better. So I don't know if any of you have trouble sleeping. But if you do, try to develop your, your friendliness, your kindness, your, your compassion, your empathy. Um, there might be other reasons he gave. Oh, the other, and the fourth reason I can think, I know of, is loving-kindness practice is an antidote to anger. So if you have trouble by anger, one of the ways of dealing with it is to cultivate loving-kindness, is develop that capacity for loving-kindness. And we found it very, very helpful on the retreats. We often teach it to people who have a lot of self-criticism or self-loathing, um, that um, it's uh, sometimes mindfulness is, doesn't really work as a practice if you have all this self-loathing or criticism because with mindfulness practice you just get you'll just discover more reasons to not like yourself <laughs> uh, because you know you, you see more what's going on and so what's sometimes needed is to is to soften you know, is, to, is to change the relationship to yourself and offer yourself kindness and loving kindness 
And that's often what our inner life most needs. And this, I said earlier, this idea of being complete, mindfulness is to hold it all. The parts of ourselves that we want to push away, the parts of us we want to deny, um, are often the parts that are, are in most need of our friendliness, of our kindness, of our love. And so to cultivate loving kindness so we can bring, bring those qualities to what's most difficult in us is often very healing and very helpful. So, um, there are a number of qualities of loving-kindness that makes it different from conventional love. Or to say it differently, the conventional love that we talk about in our society, in songs and movies and all kinds of places, we, love is champion is very important. And from a Buddhist perspective, is uh, a mixed bag. It contains different elements in it. It's not pure love. It's love combined with desire. It's love combined with um, all kinds of so, uh, psychological needs. It's love combined with all kinds of attitudes and assumptions about what is important for life. And so love is very complicated for many people. We invest a lot. Conventional love is invested with a lot, a lot of uh, needs which are separate from what love is in and of itself. And so the, one of the beautiful things to do with mindfulness practice as we become more sensitive to what's going on inside is to begin to tease apart uh, what is essential in the act of love and what is not. Uh, we don't want to throw away the baby with the bathwater, but is there attachment that comes into play when we love someone? If there is, can we, is it possible to relax and let go of the attachment and maintain the love? And it is. And it's one of the beautiful uh, movements to make. If we, t- if we see love as just one solid thing, then it's like all or nothing. Either I have to let go of it, not love, and live a sterile life, or uh, I have to have it all. But the Buddhist approach to this whole area of love is to accept it, see this beautiful part of life, but then to begin looking at it in more detail, study it more carefully, and see what is it going on here. Is there fear as part of it? Is there jealousy? Is there greed? Is there desire? Is there self-identity issues that come into play? Um, what, are we, uh, what are we getting from the relationship? Um, how much do we, how much, what we get from the relationship are we attached to and clinging to? Are what the things we get from the relationship healthy things to get, or are they not? There's a whole series of things we analyze, bring mindfulness to, for the purpose of clarifying or purifying the love so that it becomes something that uh, becomes freeing rather than limiting. Most people don't see the limitations of conventional love until it's taken away, until something challenges it. If you fall head over heels in love with someone, the limitations of that are seldom seen. But then, uh, you know, she, he doesn't return it. <laughs> and then, oh, then the limitations are clear. Or we have a deep love for someone, but the person dies, goes away or something. And so that sense of loss, and sometimes it's painful, the loss, but if we haven't seen the full complex of things associated with that relationship, we might not, we think, oh, I'm in pain because I lost my love. But some of the pain has nothing to do do with the loss of the love, but maybe has a loss loss of security. For some people, security of being in relationship, which is the the real 
the deepest grief they have because now they're petrified how they can get through life without the security of that person to take care of them. There's a lot of things that people add on. <clears throat> the challenge of this practice of loving-kindness in Buddhism is to purify it, is to bring it down to its essence. And then to begin universalizing it. So when love, kindness, friendliness comes down to its essence, then um, it's not going to cause anybody any suffering. And that's one of the functions or one of the aspects, one of the manifestations of loving kindness, is it's a kind of love that doesn't cause anybody harm. Um, I've caused harm with my so-called love. I can tell you stories from when I was in high school. But I won't. <laughs> because probably just evoking that time in your life, for some of you, you can have your own stories. The, um, but how to have a kind of deep regard, appreciation, to appreciate the beauty in someone else, to feel a warm, kind regard for them, um, to feel a kind of openness and goodwill towards someone. With, while that goodwill, while that openness, while that warmth doesn't come with anything that needs something from them or is going to harm that person, is the task of discovering this loving kindness. So that's a very important part of this love, is to have a love which is safe for other people. The other is, as it develops, is to have, not to see it as an exchange. Is that you don't need to have anything in return. And one of the things that I think I've learned, as I've studied Buddhism and known many people who are very mature and their spiritual practice, and I've kind of, the degree to which I've matured myself in this practice, it's my conclusion that the human heart has a greater need to love than to be loved. And, uh, and, if you, and to not allow the heart to love causes great harm to ourselves. But to not to be loved, it's not that important to be loved, believe it or not. Some of you, you know, orient your life maybe mostly around being loved, maybe out of insecurity or something. But to be like, a, you know, a, uh, like in the story in my book, um, a furnace doesn't need a little space heater next to it because it's just blasting out the heat. So when your love is so strong and powerful, it, you know, it doesn't really matter that much how much someone loves you in return because your love is so full and so powerful. And this is, that, this is that, uh, what's possible by consciously and actively developing our capacity for friendliness, goodwill, loving-kindness. And that's one of the tasks of loving-kindness meditation. Buddhism has a whole important meditation practice <clears throat> when you sit down, close your eyes, <clears throat> what you do in this meditation practice is see if you can develop an impartial friendliness. Or maybe impartial not the right word, but um, a, a loving kindness, a friendliness, a goodwill that's not based on preferences. It doesn't prefer some people over other people. And the way to get there, the way this practice is done, 
is you begin by evoking the memory or the, the presence, the imagine, you think of someone for whom it's really easy for you to love, but where the love is not mixed up with a lot of romantic attachments. So probably best not if it doesn't start there. But just someone it's easy to have, you know, love. It could be uh, some family member, a distant family member, a friend. I know one person who, the only person uh, he could think of who could felt as kind of, he had the unconditional loving kindness for, was easy to have love for, was his dog. So he began there. So the idea is to begin the practice by evoking the kind of friendliness, goodwill, love you might have for someone who is easy to have. And for some people it might be a family member, or it could be someone in your tribe, you know, someone, you, you know, someone close into you. And, and kind of begin working at it, understand what's going on there, be sensitive to it, begin teasing apart the things that are extra, the attachments, the fears that might be part of it, and see if you can make it simpler and simpler. It's a very simple, direct uh, kind of goodwill that needs nothing in return. It's sometimes called unconditional positive regard for someone else. So you take it where it's easy, your friend, someone. And then, once you've established it there, purified there, developed it there, clarified it there, then you begin expanding it outwards. And you go next to some people, some person, who it's almost as easy to, ha- to love them as clear- cleanly, but not quite. Like maybe you start with your best friend first. And then you know, maybe it's, you know, and then you, uh, or maybe it's not your best friend, maybe it's like a teacher you had in seventh grade, who you don't know much about that person, except the person helped you. And you just feel all this good, warm feelings about teacher so long ago. You don't know the fact that the person, you know, details of their life that make things complicated. But you feel it there, and then you take it out to your, maybe your friend, who you mostly have a lot of love and care for your friend, but there was that one time. <laughs> and so you mostly have it there, but there was that one time, the one issue. And so you see, what does it take to let go of that? Or what does it take to open up to that person so there's no hesitation to have the goodwill, the friendliness be simple and direct and full? And then you go to someone it's a little bit harder and a little bit harder. And slowly over time, over days and months and years of doing this practice of kindness, the way of doing it is to expand out. So it no longer becomes preferential, no longer becomes the, your in-group, your people who it's easy to do with. But you start there, you don't let go of that, but you expand it <clears throat> until such a time the whole world is your family, the whole world is your community, that you can have this without any preference for one person over another. And then it's said that that loving-kindness is boundless. And the boundless loving-kindness is considered to be the perfection of loving-kindness. So the parami of today, the perfection of this today, this is the perfection of loving-kindness. And you know that you perfected it when you're able to have kind of a non-preferential goodwill, friendliness to anybody and everyone, where you feel safe enough and comfortable enough in yourself that no matter who comes up to you, you can turn towards them and meet them with your goodwill. It doesn't mean you have to invite them into your house, it doesn't mean you have to do anything, but then they meet, when, you, when the person meets you, they feel that goodwill from you, they don't feel hostility.
universal goodwill. Not easy to do, but even knowing that that's a direction we're trying to develop and go towards is a beautiful thing to do. And I, I, I have tremendous respect and appreciation for people who are, have an aspiration, have a direction in their life. Yes, I would think I will be a, become a person who can meet others, no matter who it is, with my goodwill. It's a great direction to set one's life. So, <clears throat> try it. <laughs> so thank you for your attention. And uh, next week the plan is to finish this list of 10 and talk about uh, equanimity. And they say that equanimity actually is the thing that finally perfects loving kindness. So uh, that's interesting, the connection between equanimity and the perfection of loving kindness. So thank you. <laughs>